I'm Garrett McCaffrey, and this is the Swim Swam podcast. Today with us is the assistant coach at Arizona State University, Herbie Bame, good friend, uh, former coaching colleague, and uh, and like I said, one of my good friends. Thank you so much for for joining the Swim Swam podcast today, Herbie. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. sorts of stuff uh, with our history we can really get into some good coaching nitty-gritty uh, but let's start with some of the timely um, topics and I guess the the question that most people wonder looking in from the outside at ASU is how this crazy year has been even crazier for you guys um, because of the decision to redshirt the team for this past uh, NC2A season yeah it's certainly I mean, I'd say different is almost an understatement, but um, with with our guys, I think there was, I mean, definitely a lot of stressors that other people were dealing with that we got to kind of sidestep because of that decision to redshirt where it was, the plan the whole time was we're just going to focus on trials and get ready for that. Um, and as everyone knows, the NCAA season was pretty short. Most people started had a dual meet or two in January, then conference February, then NCAAs. Definitely those few weeks around conference and NCAAs is when our whole team was kind of feeling feeling antsy and wanting to be there. But um, we swam at some local meets and we got opportunities to race. But for the most part, it was, um, yeah, a pretty good move because we, I mean, first time we've really been able to kind of took it as almost an Olympic red shirt that a lot of people take where it's focusing more on long course and focusing on the training aspect. And, um, some kids who took a semester at home who were in a spot where they could train, um, at the beginning of this when everything was even more uncertain. And yeah, I think for the, for the most part, we're, we're in a great spot now. Um, now it's kind of back to level playing field as we see it with all the other college teams. So we're all getting ready for the same meet again. So yeah, it's definitely, definitely a big learning year for all of us. Um, but yeah, I think most of the learning has been done. I think uh, we're going to dive into some of that learning and, and some of the unique opportunities that this crazy year kind of provided to you specifically with Silver Linings. But um, along those same lines, you're now preparing for Olympic trials this summer and then beyond that, the 2021-2022 season. Does yeah. the, the redshirt decision affect next year um, in recruiting, in like how your lineup would look or how things go for Pac-12s and NC2As next year? Is there any other effects of it going forward yeah i think i mean it just kind of gives us a super team with five years worth of swimmers on one team because we have an outstanding recruiting class coming in next year um i mean really the best class we've ever had at asu and then the seniors who are returning are some of our best well probably our best seniors that we've ever had so getting all of those guys together for one final hurrah of a super team is pretty exciting that's kind of what we're just knocking on wood that everything goes as planned, which I'm sure it won't, but um, on paper, it's really exciting. 
let's get into it. Um, within the group structure there and the training groups at ASU, what are your responsibilities? So my responsibilities are, for the most part, the male sprinters. There's a couple who are a little bit more kind of mid-D guy, at least I consider mid-D guys, like swim the 200. <laughs> um, and focus on that. But yeah, it's kind of a group of people really focused on 1500 and 200 and kind of the, the emphasis of that moves around. But um, my group right now is actually just all the men in that group. I feel like it's uh, like, <laughs> I know some little kids dream of growing up to be firefighters and policemen and all those doctors and lawyers and all those things. But as a young swim coach, you grow up to be a collegiate sprint coach. Yeah. That's exactly what you're doing. Are you comfortable being called a sprint coach? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, um, I, it's definitely what, what I am, especially with this role right now. I mean, I like to, to think I could do just as well with other distances and things like that, but I do like the diving in and really in, seeing the specifics of these guys swimming races where it goes up to just about 90 seconds in the yards 200 and really diving into that aspect of it and all of the things that go into that. So I enjoy the specificity of being able to have a group of very similar, at least in their event profile people and try and figure out all the different ways in which they tick. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I don't want to toot your horn or anything, but there's a crazy statistic about the number of guys you, you guys have in that 19 high 20.0 range uh, compared to a lot of the other teams across the country. And, and you're doing a good job with those sprinters. And I think you're right. The ability to dive in to the specificity of those, you know, 18 to 90 seconds really allows you to do some fun things that a lot of us want to hear about. And I definitely want to get to yeah. all of that. Um, let's start with what makes a good sprinter. Like, what do you think makes them so good in that short period of time? I think there's a lot of ways to go about it. And I think it's the individual to express their own uniqueness and whatever it is that makes them really good. I mean, with just our a group of guys in just the 50 where there's not really that much pacing that we have to worry about. There's a lot of different ways to go about it. And a lot of times people get lost in seeing somebody who kicks to 15 off both walls and they might be a terrible underwater kicker trying to do that. And just like changing the way in which they're actually good and almost working on a weakness um, and giving up their strength to, do somebody else's weakness or vice versa um, is where a lot of people run into, run into a trap. So there's some guys who do it mainly through technique. Some guys do it mainly through underwater kicking. Some guys do it through power. So kind of the individual's ability to display their own ability. Do you think it takes a, a specific kind of mentality? You, you kind of alluded to embracing your uniqueness is that a mentality? Yeah. Um, to, to an extent, yeah. I think, um, yeah, it's like 
almost yeah, liking whatever it is that you have to do to be successful. Um, yeah, some of those, I mean, some guys kind of need to do a lot of 200 work and stuff like that. Some guys really want to be the guy, like most sprinters really want to be the guy who just is in the weight room the whole time, just gets in the water and swims fast, but there's almost none <laughs> who really do that. So just, yeah, being able to, who kind of accept the cards that you're given <laughs> and play those to the best of your ability is, is what it is. I think there's a lot of that you have to do in training as well to where it is like, okay, you are terrible at kicking underwater. We're only going to take three kicks off the start and turn, but you got to make those really good. And it's going to take working on it every single day to make those, those good. And yeah, you might, but you're not going to be that far behind it. <laughs> so it just work on that and kind of um yeah accepting accepting the cards you're dealt yeah let's talk about um how you've kind of come from the idea of race pace training that you and i and let's make sure all the viewers kind of understand our background herbie and i uh when i was first named head coach at phoenix swim club herbie was one of my first hires um as the, the senior group assistant and also one of our age group coaches. And uh, I was definitely still a young coach looking to learn and Herbie taught me a ton. And I definitely credit Herbie with a lot of the foundational things that I believe in as a coach where um, speed is where the adaptation that we're looking for is taking place. But at the same time, we, I think I, I know I have, and I don't wanna speak for Herbie, I'm gonna let him speak for himself but I know that he has as well evolved away from, you know, what would be labeled or considered race pace. Not that we were ever doing Brent Russell's, you know, exact race pace formulas. Herbie, there were three areas of race pace that I think I've evolved in. And I know that uh, I'd like to hear your thoughts on it. Um, dry land work, uh, aerobic work, and then how you periodize the, the work in general. And I kind of want to get into all three of those. So I guess uh, I'm going to leave it up to you how we cover those three. But how have you kind of evolved from what, when we were working together initially, we were thinking that the only thing you needed to be doing was race efforts at race speed. Um, and that included nothing else in dry land, um, not a lot of other aerobic work, not a ton of drilling, although, you know, we would do more than just the race pace, obviously getting warm up and warm down in. But um, how have you evolved from from that as the foundation still? And, and I think still a really important piece of the big picture. I think your, your, uh, your head coach, Bob Bowman, has alluded to it as, you know, full course meal and those being the vegetables, like a really important piece of it. Yeah. Um, into more of that holistic, I guess, but still like you're alluding to very specific um, approach to training. Yeah. So I guess the simplest way of describing it is I see race pace training as a tool that's very important to improvement, but it's, it's just a single tool and there's a lot of other ways to improve. And ultimately you're going to be limited by just, I mean, just using a hammer on every single thing, it's not really going to work. Um, so what I've kind of grown with that is it's still like, I think it's similar to how you described it, where that's kind of the basis and the foundation. It's just kind of grown out from there. Um, 
And I found this, I'll share my screen really quick and try and um, talk through it as well in case people are just listening. Um, but you can see this, right? Yep. So this is the, um, Antolier Bondarchuk, who's a hammer-throwing coach, who he actually has a pretty impressive resume. He coached every um, world record holder in the hammer since he held it in 1968. <laughs> so he has, like, I mean, coached gold, silver, and bronze in that event for five Olympics in a row. So it's pretty – he knows his stuff when it comes to that. And I think this is one of his – probably his best contribution that he's given to um, just the coaching community. And, I mean, it's – pyramid pretty straightforward and we use this a lot in swimming which is why I really like this and um, I mean the competitive exercise which is the very top this is let's say this is just 100 free um, then the special develop or the specific developmental exercises this is what race pace is this is um, I mean repeats the movement and trains the physiological system and you can it's you kind of have to do this to get better at this but below that there's the preparatory work that you have to do that'll make the specific developmental work better and ultimately make the competitive exercise better so it's understanding kind of the bottom of this base where this might be drilling or more aerobic work or stuff here and then the general preparatory exercises is stuff on land or just kind of any any movement that you do that trans that makes these better, which makes this better, which th makes this better. So it's kind of understanding this continuum where improvement comes from. And I don't think you have to start at the bottom of the pyramid to go through a season. I, I certainly don't. I kind of think of look at this and you're trying to grow the base as well as the top at the same time. And each individual has a different shaped pyramid, so to speak. Some people's base is really small, but their peak is really high. Like people who have done a lot of that really specific work and a lot of the, the race pace work, that's kind of how they're built. And you, you have to keep that, the top of the pyramid, the same. you can't just go back to the bottom and work on that and expect it to transfer all the way to the top. You kind of are building the bottom and the top of the pyramid at the same time. So typically what, what I do is we're doing aspects of this every single week. We're normally doing at least some sort of specific developmental exercise. I would prefer 52 weeks a year. Obviously this year we didn't, we didn't do 52 weeks with most of the summer last summer being close, but um, you can do this all the time in my opinion and get better. You have to somewhat change the focus, but this is kind of the guiding light for, for everything I do. And um, just to kind of continue explaining that, one thing that, um, that I've done is I kind of use those um, specific developmental sets or the race pace sets as the almost North Star as to what we're doing in training. And that gives me a lot of information as to what the weakness is. So if they're I mean, it's pretty obvious if they're dying at the end of 450s on two minutes that some aerobic work is going to help them. Um, if they're not able to push off the wall or anything like that pretty well, then they're, they're probably going to need to do some work in the weight room. So it's using those race pace sets as almost like the just first tool that you use, and then it shows which, which one you got to go to next. 
But to really reach the highest level, you've got to kind of be a master of all trades and, and do that for each person. So, um, and certainly with a college program like ours, we're getting kids coming from completely diverse backgrounds and, um, I mean, totally different strengths and strengths and weaknesses, just not um, even considering how they were trained in the past. You kind of have to build each person's pyramid differently and give them what they need in terms of that strength and weakness. And that's the the hardest part that I think um, most coaches don't don't like accepting is that it's it's not really like the the program necessarily like I'm not going to have a perfect program that we follow over and over again because I mean if you do that normally one or two kids will swim well and the rest don't don't swim that well so it's almost starting it just normally start the season relatively similarly and then it just changes and week by week by the end of the season we're normally doing completely different things with each person in the group sometimes Um, so it's it's used that and going back to the race pace, that's what, what tells me what's needed. And that's probably because that's what I have the longest background in. And I understand that. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of ways of using it. I still go back to it as, you know, the most applicable data that we can give them. It's their speed. Yeah. You know? And obviously yeah. there's still count. Then there's a bunch of other really important factors and variables, but you're right. As a good touchstone, when we were coaching together, there was a period when we both believed and we would use the line, a cheetah doesn't squat. Yeah. Yet it's still the fastest animal. It just practices yeah. running fast. And I think one of the things we missed in that scenario is like the, <laughs> the <laughs> desire for a teenage kid to have the same like drive of a cheetah looking to eat. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's the the missing variable in that analogy, but I still think that there is some you know, applicable thought behind it. This, it doesn't matter how race specific you get on dry land. It's not going to be the same specific strength that you get from swimming fast. Yeah. So what gains can be made from dry land and strength training now? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, I certainly think there's certain exercises on land that are much better than the others, but it's going back to that was the mistake that I certainly used to make of, like, oh, this guy, he got this much stronger and he can't swim any faster. So the strength training didn't work at all. But then it goes to kind of how you're using the strength training and organizing it in a system. So, I mean, maybe at the beginning when you're building this strength, the speed might stay constant. And then you move to more and more specific exercises. And you almost have to organize it in a way to where the athletes are learning like if they're doing squats or cleans or whatever movement it is in the weight room then kind of okay this let's just use a power clean for example okay this is how you do this and then this makes you better at box jumps which is kind of similar to a start and then that's you use that in your race and you kind of have to go in that order and show them um and it's almost like learning in a language that's that's not english because it's just learning these movements and if it's done correctly, they'll, they'll know. And they'll, that's, that's why I think um, so many people swear by it and maybe can't explain why because they're not, they're, it's just the translation in which 
verbalizing it is what's hard for them. But they're like, well, I know that this, this movement may be better at this movement, which made me better at this movement. But the way that I used to look at it was squats, 50 freestyle time. What the heck? It's not working. But there was all these steps in between that connected the dots. And it's kind of probably just doing it long enough that made me realize that there, there is more in between. And it is kind of that, that base, so to speak, that led to the next steps that were able to allow them to achieve whatever time it was that they were trying to get. You gave me a really cool specific example when we met a week ago, just to kind of catch up. Um, And I don't need to give any names or anything, but specifically when quarantine hit, there were some limits with pool availability and you even had one of your swimmers working on a track start. Yeah. I think like, it's just learning how to move your body and learn, like seeing the, the movement. Cause, um, Gavin Walker, our strength coach and I talk about stuff like that all the time. And he was looking at, I mean, we've looked at videos of like track starts and swimming starts and there's so many similarities in movements. I mean, we're, we're all the, the same being, whether we're training for a hundred meter dash on land or a hundred freestyle. Um, and that specific movement of like the joint angles that you're creating and just creating power is, is pretty general. And that's what I used to think was it was so specific and like running isn't going to make you swim dive off the blocks faster. But I mean, pushing off a block in a track start and pushing off a block in a swim start is, is pretty similar. Like I'm sure a lot of these really good jumpers and sprinters could, I mean, figure out how to, how to dive in pretty well. <laughs> like it's yeah. not that specific to where it doesn't take 10 years to figure out how to, how to do a decent dive. And once you kind of figure that out, it's almost your body telling stories to itself of how to move in different ways and how to make that more applicable. And then by doing that, you'll, you'll, you'll be pretty good um, when you move back to the specific stuff. Can I put you on the spot and ask you to go over um, one of your relay exchanges? This goes right in line with what you're talking about, yeah. the movement. And I, yeah. I think people would love to see it. I know I appreciated you sending it to me. Yeah. Talk a little bit about one of the things that you've been working on with relay starts. So basically the, um, we were typically, I know I was taught to do relay start staying low. I remember the cue was to pretend like, you're in a three foot tall building where you have to stay low and step over, but that's not the way that we jump and that's not the way that we move. And I was, um, started, I was actually watching some video of the world record long jump and high jump. And both of them stayed completely upright the whole time. And then watching, um, some horizontal and vertical jumps in the NFL combine, they reached, literally reach as high as they can kind of stretch, stretch all their muscles. And that's one thing that we have to know is that our muscles have elastic components to them. So they literally work like rubber bands. Um, So if you're not stretching that rubber band, it's not going to contract the same way that it can. And when you watch any vertical jump, or even when you watch kids do box jumps, they kind of naturally figure that out of they reach as high as they can then quickly contract down and jump back up. So by teaching athletes to stay low, in some ways we're kind of teaching the elastic components right out of them. So what 
what we've been experimenting with, and it's certainly faster with the, the kids that we've timed, is as they're stepping over for the step over relay start to literally reach up, reach as high as they can with their arms straight and literally do the opposite of what we've been taught. And that's giving you as much potential energy as possible and then swing straight forward, really quickly go down and then jump forward. And by having that stretch, in theory, it should make you I mean, use that elastic component to stretch down and then jump out. So that's, that's one thing that, um, I mean, going back to what we were saying before, if you stick on the specificity and just keep watching, okay, this is how the best relay starts guys have been doing it, you're missing out on these 27-foot long jumpers who are way better at relay starts. <laughs> Even if they didn't, if probably the first day they did it, they would figure out how to be better than most of our guys. Um, so by learning from those other sports and doing new movements, it's, it's pretty good. And going back to that example, we started it with, um, Elijah Warren, who's a super athletic breaststroker on our team. Who's, I mean, he has one of the, he's probably a 40 inch vertical jump. And it was like, I just kind of explained it to him. Like, look, I think I've, everything I've told you is wrong. <laughs> Forget this. And just try and do this like the way you do a, box jump which I've seen him do a ton of times where he stretches up goes down and he was like oh yeah that that's got to be faster and then we timed it to 15 and he was like 0.3 faster every single time so I mean my thought is if we can get three guys 0.3 that's a whole second <laughs> so hopefully that'll help out a decent amount yeah yeah hopefully you didn't help out NC State Cal Texas with that tip yeah everybody yeah. else listen up that's good <laughs> stuff yeah. <laughs> um, do your sprinters do aerobic work? I know yeah. that's a silly question, but yeah. what do you guys yeah. do? Like how, how has that evolved from, you know, the strict race pace, which I want to reemphasize. I know you never did because I was there, but yeah. how's it um, Yeah, it's certainly, it's, it kind of goes back to, we have to, there's, an amount of overload that you have to give to the system to get better. And then amount of overload that you have to be specific about and kind of the further away you get from the very specific movement. So the less like a 50 freestyle that you do, the less transfer is going to go into that 50, but there's going to be more overload and you have to overload the system to make the system better. And then you have to keep the specific work up as well. So, it looks different for there's I'd say probably three real ways of doing it in the, the group that we have. And that's a group of 10 guys. So there's quite a bit of difference for some, it looks a lot more traditional where they're doing hundreds, two hundreds and maybe 2000 straight of, of a set like that. And then another group that's just kind of doing technique, but sets of 25s, 50s with 10 15 seconds rest and they just do that for an hour um and that really i think goes back to perfecting the technique and doing it in a in a unique way learning how to move slowly um one thing that kind of helped help me because my everything kind of goes back to teaching the technique and that's what we have to do and if you're not doing that it's it's kind of a waste of time um, and Franz Bosch, who's a pretty well-known um, strength coach in the track and field community, says there's um, 
can't remember the term, but it's basically there's more ways to to waltz than to to sprint. <laughs> so it's a lot. It's actually a very hard movement to keep the technique really good for when you're doing even if it's sets of fifties for thirty minutes straight. When you're going slow, you kind of have to be a lot more cognizant of the movements that you're doing. When everybody sprints, it looks good, and that's why. Before it was like, oh man, they all look really good and we're going fast. Let's just go fast all the time because they always look good like that. But then after a few months of doing that, it's like, well, what are we going to learn? We already, we already learned it. It's like, once you know how to spell your name right, you can only spell it wrong. <laughs> so we got to do something else for them to continue learning. Um, so by adding in those slower movements and long, keeping just, I mean, one guy, um, Carter Swift, who um, was one of the, my longer distance guys who had a was 133 in the 200 last year. It was kind of his aerobic work. It was just kind of go as much as we can of three kicks, nine strokes, and just keeping that length and keeping good technique at that. And he got up to where he was doing like, I mean, a few 200 straight in a row. And that actually had a ton of transfer to the race because he's, he's actually kind of the perfect example of somebody who's was not good <laughs> kicking underwater. And if we make him time a 25 underwater kick, it won't be very good, but he got really good at just having three kicks to where in the final of pack 12s, there's nobody beating him underwater. And a huge credit of that was to all the slow swimming that we did and learning just how to move and how to be efficient at that, um, at that pace and using kind of, different muscles and just a really different way of viewing it. I know it sounds, I mean, silly, but do sprinters have to learn how to swim slow to really get the full, you know, training? I, I actually think so. I used to not think that. Um, but now I do. I mean, to give you another specific example, I remember in 2015 at Phoenix when Eric Rizzovato made his FINA A cut, I put a cap on where you're never going to swim slower than 11 seconds on a 25. And that was a whole year where the slowest he ever swam was 11 seconds on a 25. I mean, he, he literally rarely did more than a 25. He did fifties twice a week, but um, that was kind of the extreme. And it, I think he has a pretty unique um, just physiological system, but knowing what I know now, I'm sure there would have been quite a bit of benefit from Cause it was like, he, this guy didn't know how to swim slow. So it's like, okay, we're not going to do it. And, um, just by doing that, cause you can have, there's only so much that you can gain and, um, from really specific stuff. And there's only so many times a week that you can do it. And perhaps instead of just hammering that every single day, if we had a couple days where it was, I mean, swim slow and make it look really good he would have just been more aware of the movements that he's making and some stuff that's totally subconscious while you're sprinting, it might kind of become a little more conscious. And then when you go back to sprinting, you'll be a little bit better. So I certainly think you have to, to teach it. And that's where um, I think a lot of people miss. It's, I think the, the, I try and use the flip side of anything now to um, just think about that. Like I, it's would a distance swimmer get hurt by swimming fast. I mean, my mindset five years ago would have been like, no, they should do that more. They need to do that more. So why would a short sprinter be hurt by swimming slow? So 
I think there's um, kind of validity to both. Yeah, as long as the technique is good, right? That's the common thread. Yeah, and it's, and it's ultimately, I think it's, it goes a little bit beyond that to where it's not necessarily, the technique doesn't have to be good, but it has to be a stimulus that allows them to learn. So you're not necessarily trying to repeat the correct problem over and over again. You're trying to solve a similar problem over and over again. And then when you go to the meet, you're going to have all these amazing problem solving abilities, which that's ultimately what all sports are. So I've definitely limited people before by just like, okay, they're really good at solving this problem. Let's just keep giving them that. And I think that limits their growth. It's good stuff. I think you're like my ninth podcast since I've started doing these again. And just like admitting that stuff is rare. I'm not saying nobody else has done it, but you know, yeah. it's rare. And that's, I think that's the stuff that people really gain from these type of conversations. It's not yeah. a you know, 15 minute soundbite. It's really diving in deep. So yeah, that's awesome. I, I think that this is the, the good stuff. Hopefully you listeners are enjoying it as well. Let's continue the conversation, talk a little bit about periodization of training. And, you know, it used to be, we would have our sets. We've alluded to fifties on two, still believe in that as a pretty nice touchstone to give you some ideas on, um, you know, like you said, where they're at. Cause we know <laughs> what that set does. We kind of have a good idea of how you can tweak it and make it a little different to, you know, still hit the same idea. But we used to build it until, you know, they couldn't add any more and they couldn't do any more yardage. And then we'd stop building it and we'd restart with more speed. But usually it was the same kind of climb. Yeah. How have things evolved for you and, you know, get us up to date on, on how you're kind of attacking your periodization um, methods at this point? Yeah. Basically, um, it goes back to similar point that I just made. I think ultimately periodization, there's all these different ways of doing it and all of them have different names. And if you really were to break it down to what it is, just give it one word, it's change. And that's the one thing that's constant between any type of periodization scheme. And you, you have to have that in the system. And if you don't, they're, they're not going to improve. And the speed at which people are able to adapt to that change is very individualized. And that's what I think is the, the real, I mean, question that we're all trying to figure out. Um, and to go back to the specifics of like those fifties on two minutes, fifties at hundred pace is still, I mean, all the kids that I coach at ASU know, a pretty good, I mean, they'll know exactly what you're talking about if you just say 50s on two, because it's, we haven't really done it that same way since the first semester I was here at ASU. We kind of built up through that. And I remember it was right around, it was like right the end, beginning of Christmas training, the end of the first semester, we did 12 50s on two minutes suited, and they were totally lights out. And that was when it was 100% clear to me that we, we're, we're done with that. We should not do it again for a very long time um, because they weren't, they weren't going to be better and trying to be better was like, I mean, just squeezing out the very end of a tube of toothpaste where it's like, they already did really good. Let's just leave it at that and do something else. So that was when for me, it was like, okay, well, this accomplished the goal of swimming at one speed, which is very fast for, a pretty long amount of time. And there's more ways to do that than just fifties on two minutes. So that's when it started seeing the similarities, but trying it 
in new ways. So we still kind of, I still kind of use a much more general volume where beginning of the season, it starts not very many. I mean, normally around four of those. And then we build up in where we're, we might be doing nine or 10 fifties at a time, but it's all, it's always trying to be different in a way that they haven't done before. And it's ultimately going to the weakness that I see that they have in, in the race. Um, I still always think it's really important to start from the end of the race and make sure they can finish it and then build the speed from there. So normally periodization looks like starting those sets of a higher volume and getting whatever it is, whether it's eight on two minutes or sets of two on two minutes, two on one minute, like two or three rounds of those um, where it's really targeted, where the, the last 50 is very hard. Um, and we kind of do that until they're really good. And then we start changing it to where it might be a set of, I mean, six on four minutes or something where it's a similar st stimulus, but new and like, and you obviously know you're, they're all going to go faster when it's on four minutes than it, when it was on two minutes. Um, I mean, at least that's how the, my sprinters work. Some distance swim, swimmers might, <laughs> might not, but <laughs> that's when it kind of goes back to seeing the individual strengths and weaknesses and building it around there. And that was the really most eye-opening thing for me this season is because I've always used the meets as my biggest thing of feedback. Cause like, even if the sets are going great, if the meet isn't good, well then it's like, okay, the set obviously isn't doing what I think it's doing. And that was the challenge of this year with that, with not having meets. And I kind of realized that pretty quickly in to where it's like, um, I think this is working, but we haven't <laughs> swam any meets. So I really hope, hope it is. And I'm pretty confident it's at least doing something, but um, that's the, the biggest thing for, for me in terms of what I learned about periodization is that it's so much just feedback from the meets. So yeah, that was the the main change that I kind of have to to know if we're, I mean, hopefully never in a situation like we were again. Um, but if we are, or if forever, for whatever reason, we have a really long time without meets, for me personally to be able to make them the best swimmers, I either need to kind of find a new strategy or just schedule in a handful of time trials that we put a major emphasis on and treat it like it's really important because um, I mean, I still think it was one of the better decisions in December um, 2020. I had just three of my guys go to the U S open in Irvine. And that was like, I mean, we had kind of just gotten into it. We had had chunks of two or three week breaks where we got closed down for COVID and it was like super inconsistent but I remember being like, look, like for me, I, I've got to see you swim at a meet where it's important that you guys are going to care about it. And if you swim slow, it's not like when we time trial and practice and it's like, well, you know, if this was a meet, I would have done better. It's like, no, we got to remove any option of like cowering out and go somewhere where it's going to be like, no excuse. The time is the time and let's see how we do and let's see how this is working. Um, because that's how we're going to be better the next time. So that's, that's kind of what, what I learned. And I think, um, I think most coaches won't be willing 
to say that, but I think almost everybody uses the meets a lot more than they'd like to say. Even the people who are like, no, we don't care about in-season meets. We're just training. It's like, I, I mean, I, I don't know how to, how to do it that way. So maybe some people do, but that's like the most important thing for me. So basically making a good schedule is what I learned is number one priority of periodization. And I guess you would think that if anybody knew how to put in just a solid amount of training to, cause that would be needed. It would be, you know, your head coach, Bob Bowman, who had to prepare somebody for something that nobody had ever done before. And even yeah. in that case, I, going back to the first time I saw Michael break a world record in 2003 at uh, mission VA. Nope. Sorry. At a uh, Santa Clara um, in the 200 IM finals, like, he was from that point in 2003 all the way through, I guess, 2008 for sure. And then maybe 2012, he was always on at meets. He never lost, you know, oh, it's yeah. not like he got buried in the middle of this, those seasons. Like he was yeah. setting world records a lot of times in season, which that, that meet at Santa Clara is a good example. Of yeah. But uh, what, what has Bob kind of taught you, especially through this year, about how to use that training um, or how maybe he has used meets and stuff in the past to help him with that periodization. Yeah. He, um, the biggest thing that I've learned from him is he really looks at it from, he looks at it really from a different lens than I had ever had where it's kind of all about the, the energy systems come first. And then if you do that right, the meat takes care of itself and kind of seeing how he does that and seeing how um, he really uses the volume to be the stimulus like we were talking about before, but not have it ever be overbearing is pretty impressive. I mean, I certainly had never literally, I remember they had a day two, I guess it was, yeah, two seasons ago where their whole group was a 20,000 yard meter day. Um, and I know like myself five years ago would have been like done <laughs> the season's over. They're never, they're never coming back, but he had just kind of steadily built it. And it was, it wasn't, the kids didn't even think it was very hard. And it's because it literally wasn't that hard. It was just kind of staying moving, staying in this zone too, like not easy, not hard. It's kind of the goal that you're swimming at. Um, and it's, normally designed in a way to where they can challenging, but they can keep a pretty good looking stroke through the whole thing. And they're not just overworking and killing themselves. So it kind of goes back to the, the same principle of it's stimulating, not necessarily annihilating them. Um, I mean, you kind of got to get close to annihilating them a couple times a year, but <laughs> uh, stay away from that for the most part. Um, and that's what, is has been the biggest thing that that I've learned from Bob and he kind of um it was definitely cool for me coming from what I think I certainly thought was kind of the drastic other side of the spectrum to where I perceived him as and actually kind of us both being a lot closer and at least the way that we think um and it's certainly not not the exact same but um yeah, kind of back to that pyramid approach. He does a super good job of just knowing the 
general preparatory and really like the specific preparatory work is what, what he's pretty incredible at. Um, and he's able to do that in a way to where it can be a seven, 8,000 meter workout. And they might have a 2050s in there that are meant to be around 200 pace and everybody's able to do it pretty well to where I, I know I would have thought you, you can't, you just can't do, you can't do that. Um, but he does a good job of knowing when to work hard and knowing when to work easy and what to actually focus on in the practice. Um, and for him, there are some days when you, you aren't supposed to focus on much. You're just supposed to swim seven K and just, just do it. And if you do that, you've, you've accomplished the goal. Well, and like you said, it's not necessarily, that hard it's kind of like we talked about the sprinters do they have to learn to swim slow and even if i'm sure during that 7k some of those people are ripping insane 100 times or something like that it's probably if you check their heart rate um if you were able to do further testing with glucose or any of those things you'd probably find out that unless there's other signs of uh that you need to be looking out for it's probably not that hard for them to do that yeah so cool uh, I, I, the whole dynamic of you two being on the same deck, I think is fascinating. Cause you, like you said, I, I think our perception five years ago was that that's the opposite side of the spectrum. I, I hear what you're saying that he's taught you about a lot of things. Is there anything you feel like you might've taught him in some regards? Um, I, 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 mean, I like to think question, so. So I know that that's a leap, but I'm just saying, are there yeah. places where you're, Feel you know seeing yourself even as a young coach like working with one of the greatest coaches in the history yeah. of the sport like where you feel like oh you know he's still growth minded <laughs> yeah oh no he that that's definitely I think that's what makes him so good and that's what I've been so impressed by him I mean I I honestly came when I started at ASU not knowing what to I was would have been totally fine and expected him to just be like this is how we're doing it and this is what you're supposed to do but it was kind of the opposite and he was just like okay you do what you want to do and I'll do this and there's some stuff that he found pretty interesting and he really likes the um like tracking of what I have and like the um specific developmental exercises with with my guys we tracked it I mean we track it every single week of the year pretty much and um Going into like going into Pac-12s last year, we had all their all their times from that set, and it was like Carter Swift said he was going to go 42 double O in the hundred free, Evan 42 35, Cody 42 65, and they were Carter was 41 98, Evan was 42 37, Cody was 41 or 42 61. So it was like we know what what this does, um, and then we actually did it with with his group. I mean, he does a handful of sets that he doesn't use that necessarily definition, but it's like, that's, that's what they are. Um, and they record it as well. And I just put them in the the database of that. And it was same thing for them for hundreds, 200 meters. Like last year, um, Allison Schmidt didn't have the best hundred three at, at worlds. But when we added up the, the pace, it was like to the hundredth, what she went. And then he was like, Oh, <laughs> like looking at it, like I, I kind of, and he was like, man, I kind of knew that, that she needed a little more speed up front. And we just kind of tried to wait until the end. And you can see like the average where the pace sets at the end were really good, but the pace sets at the beginning were really bad. And she kind of fit exa- literally the average of those. 
Um, so he, he actually really likes that stuff. And it's been cool using, um, like collecting some of that data for the thousand milers and trying to figure out that because it's all, I mean, it comes down to where it's like, it's so mathematical that if you know kind of how to use it, and that's the stuff that he does really well. And it's more like at this point for him, almost intuitive. Um, but now that we've been recording that and recording stuff that he does and putting it into just a system, you can see where everybody is. And then we can hopefully start seeing what, where people are lacking and what we kind of need to do. Um, and that's kind of where we both view it from the same way where I start here and then build everything else that way. He kind of builds everything from here and finishes here, but we both kind of do stuff like that each week. Um, and if we just put it in an Excel document and do the math, we can kind of both use this similar information to just drive our whole system. So it's, it's pretty cool um, to see it because it's certainly not, not the same viewpoint and not intended. Like we obviously didn't come from the same way of thinking. So it's, um, it's, it's just a valuable tool that we both kind of use in similar ways. Yeah. Well, obviously it's a great opportunity for you to be able to work with one of the greatest coaches in history, but I think it's a great opportunity for him because I've worked with you as an assistant coach and you're amazing. So yes, obviously <laughs> he gets you at a much more, you know, experienced level. And I, I mean, I, like I said, I wish I could be on deck with you too, because I think it would be really fascinating to hear some of the conversations. Let's finish with this very simple, but very complicated question. You know, now with your experience, what do you think it is that makes a good coach? I think it's, it's a little bit of, well, it's, it's mainly the willingness to meet the swimmer where they're at and inspire them to, to go to the next step. So if you're treating everybody the same and it's, it's, I think it's something that everybody kind of knows and everybody kind of says, but it's really hard to do. Um, so it's, it's understanding the person and understanding what they really want to do with their life because this year made it so much more clear that normally we can just say, okay, train hard and we're going to swim fast at pack 12s. Um, but now when it's like, okay, work hard and we might swim at a meet in six weeks, that's probably going to get canceled. <laughs> you kind of have to really get to know them as a person. And like, what do you, what do you like about, about swimming? And what do you like about this journey that we're all on of self-improvement that really is not, there's not that much like reward <laughs> for, for most of us in terms of what the ultimate thing we can get to. I mean, even people who make the Olympic team, it's just such a small part of it. And you kind of have to, there has to be this relationship where the swimmer and coach are totally connected and totally understand that they're helping each other. And it takes, I guess what it, coach has to be able to make that environment and make all of the kids on the team see that and everybody want to actually come to practice every day and work really hard in this pool for this sport that not that many people even understand and do a lot of weird stuff and get tired all the time and sometimes doesn't even work 
Um, but if the coach can kind of, yeah, look, look past that and find out what it is that, that makes the swimmer just enjoy life ultimately, because it goes beyond just, um, how to make them a better swimmer. Cause I think at some point that's, that's easier than getting somebody to want to train hard for, I mean, college coaches only have them for four years. You've had some kids for eight or nine years and getting them to really be inspired to think that they can be better than what they think they can be. And I think you have to kind of have to be a little bit, a little bit weird (laughs) to where you're really like, you really see a lot in people and kind of expect a lot out of them and like be a little bit kooky (laughs) But people want that. Like swimmers normally, like they want a coach to get on them and be excited about what they think they can do and always try to figure this out. And like, I know, I think COVID was the most clear time of the way that all coaches think, and especially what we'd say is good coaches, very abnormal to where like the second everything ended, we were figuring out, okay, how do we keep, like, we got to keep, we got to keep working. We can't just not do anything. We got to do something. And you kind of have to have to have that. And the swimmer has to enjoy that aspect of the coach and want their feedback and want their, their motivation and whatever they bring to the table. Cause they, they know that that's, that's one of the steps that they need to, to be what, what they want to be. So I don't know if there's, I don't know if that was like the most direct <laughs> answer to that question, but I love that. Um, yeah, I think there's, it's, it's ultimately just knowing the full potential that people have and everybody is, I mean, has so much talent that I think all coaches can admit, we don't even know how to scratch the surface of what everybody probably can do, but all of us kind of have the thought that we can, we can get them pretty good. (laughs) So it's, it's one having that within you where you got to, like you got to like it and you got to think that you can make people really good at this and you kind of have to explain it to them in a way to where they're like, yeah, that, that sounds fun. That's something, that's something I want to do. So there's, there's a lot of ways to go about that. And that kind of goes back to what it takes to be a good, good swimmer. I think you have to um, like, I know for me as a coach, if I try and do too much of like, okay, what would Bob do in this situation? and just look at it from somebody else's lens, I, I'm, I'm not going to be as good as I can be to where it's like, okay, I understand these concepts, but what's the best possible thing that I can do and not worry what anybody else thinks or not trying to be anybody else. Um, and yeah, I think you just have to have to do that and just continue doing that over and over again until you open another door and then, then get confused all over again and restart. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I can attest again, I'm biased, but uh, you know, you are a fun person to open up that next door with and try to figure that stuff out with, you know, as a coach. Um, and I know that your swimmers feel the same way about you. I've, you know, continued to work with some of them, but also just being local and around your swimmers over the last year, I know that they speak so highly of you and that's, you know, just to kind of back up the fact that you, you walk the walk, you're not just talking the talk with those relationships. And I've seen you build them. I've been lucky enough to build one with you. And I think that you're right. That kooky angle is probably my favorite because there are some, 
you got to be a little bit, you know, there's got to be something unique and you got to be yourself. And I think that's what you do best. Bring your authentic self. And that's what you're talking about too. It's not doing, you know, the best Bob doesn't hire you to do the best thing that he wants you to do. He's obviously given you that freedom and he likes, you know, you and the authentic Kirby to be able to give to the kids. And I think that's what, I think that's what kids and I think that's what athletes, I think that's what people want most. They want you to give them your authentic self. And if you give them your time and your energy as your authentic self, you're right. They'll do some pretty special things for you. So Yeah, and that's that's what I've learned is what they want. They don't necessarily they don't even want the perfect answer, but they do want to know that you're giving them your best answer. And if they do that and they're like, Okay, I, I trust that you at least kind of know what you're doing enough to to go down this road with you. You you have to do that. And when you start being not as authentic as you can be and just trying to be somebody else is when, at least in the past, that's when, when I've certainly run into troubles and I'm sure other people have had similar experiences. Yep, me for sure. Even when I'm trying to be, I do want to be more like Herbie Bain, but I got to make sure that I'm watching myself and McCaffrey <laughs> too. But seriously, this this has been Great. I've really enjoyed it. As always, I've learned a lot from you. Uh, I will continue to learn a lot from you forever. So just be ready for that. And hopefully everybody else learned a lot too, because I find you amazingly <laughs> like educating and also somehow engaging. Like it's very, you're never talking down to anybody, but you're constantly giving me new information. I'm going to stop tooting your horn because right. like I said, I'm biased, but thank you, you very keep much. You it for another 10, 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, well, let's have it. We'll save the, the tune for part two then. We'll, All right. Yeah, we'll, that'd be great. We'll do that for part two. Um, hopefully everybody else enjoys it as much as I have. But Herbie, thank you very much. Best of luck going into this summer. And we will definitely stay in touch, my friend. Great. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the Swim Swam podcast. Stay tuned for new episodes every week. You can take Swim Swim Podcast on the go by subscribing on your favorite podcast platform. Look for links in the description below and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more videos as well.